We began this Advent season with a new series. Uh, it's called Humankind. And we're looking at the interactions that Jesus had with different human beings. We're looking at the conversations that Jesus had with people. And the decision to do that obviously is rooted in the reality that the Advent season is focused on Jesus. And we thought we should probably do a series that's focused on Jesus. But it actually goes beyond that. Um, we're living in really interesting times. We're living in a moment culturally in which we really need someone or something in our life that we can hold on to that is both intellectually credible and then also emotionally impactful or dependable. I'll explain more of that in just a moment. Um, let me just say this, that every one of us in the room, if you're watching online, every single person, every human being, if you're breathing in and breathing out, you have a working philosophy, you have a worldview, you have a system that you see the world through, you have a religion that you follow. You may not think you do. Some people say, well, I'm not religious, but it turns out we all have some sort of system we're living according to through which we, we view the world and we live. We all have a way of thinking about how the world works or how to live in the world. We all have a set of answers to, to what's broken in the world and we have solutions that we come up with based on that, that way that we think. Um, we all have ideas about what it means to be human and where we come from and, and where we go. We have ideas about how to find meaning in this life and the way that we make decisions and how we spend our days is influenced by whatever that thing is. But here's the situation. I mentioned that there's something unique about this moment, that we need this faith system, we need this philosophy, whatever it is, to be both intellectually credible. And what I mean by this is that it, it needs to be rational and it needs to be true. And we need our philosophy, our worldview, our faith system, whatever it is, to also be emotionally satisfying. That is, it has to be relevant it has to, to meet my needs. It has to connect with my experience. It has to be something that's meaningful that I can actually feel. So it has to be both of these things. But the problem is that over the past few decades, we have dropped half of this equation and we've really stopped looking at this first aspect of it. Now, basically what we ask culturally is, well, does it work for me? Does it feel good? I don't really care if it's rational. I don't really care if it's coherent. I don't care if it's true. Is it functional? Does it make me feel good? Which really leads to a crisis of sorts. And let me explain it this way. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the placebo effect. Uh, this is when somebody takes something that actually does not affect their illness, but they're so convinced that it's working that their symptoms begin to be alleviated. You've heard of this before, the placebo, right? So somebody's really ill, they begin taking something that's totally benign, but their belief in that benign solution is so strong that their symptoms begin to go away. The problem with the placebo is this. Even though your, your symptoms may be diminishing, the illness that's causing those are not changing because of the placebo, which means the danger is you may feel better, but you're actually getting worse. You may feel better, but you're actually getting worse. And here's the situation. If you and I live in a spiritually objective universe in the same way that we live in a, a physically objective universe. We live in a physically objective universe. There are laws and rules about the physical universe that we understand to be true. But if we drew the conclusion, which seems very logical, that we also live in a spiritually objective universe, then we have a very big problem. Why? Well, the current state of thinking that says all that matters is that your system works for you 
in a spiritually objective universe, you only have half of the equation solved, which means we could be living with a spiritual placebo, making ourselves feel good about this, but is it actually true? Is it actually coherent? And eventually what happens is we're going to face realities or circumstances that challenge both the existential or emotional effectiveness and the intellectual integrity of what it is that we actually believe. And that's never been more evident than the days we've been living in the past couple of years. See, the placebo, it works really, really well when um, the economy is up and to the right, right? Uh, The placebo works really well as long as your job is stable, as long as you're healthy, as long as your life isn't being disrupted. But when the foundation of society begins to shake, when unrest is on the rise, when our freedoms are being restricted or our rights are being taken, our faith construct may not deliver warm, fuzzy feelings. That's when we need to be galvanized by something that is also intellectually true, something that's credible, something that doesn't simply feel good, but something that is true. That's the beauty that's presented to us in Christianity because Jesus claims to be both of those things. Jesus claims to be intellectually credible and emotionally satisfying, which means that having faith in Jesus, what Jesus presents to us is it should feel good. It should feel good. There should be feelings of joy and peace and satisfaction and meaning. It should affect our emotions. But he's also saying that even in those times when feelings betray us and circumstances go sideways, there are truths about Jesus that we can hold on to that fortify us during those times. Those things pull us through. Now, the reason I mention this is that as we continue moving forward in this series, my hope is that you would find Jesus emotionally or existentially satisfying. That as you see Jesus, that you would experience, you'd see things that go, man, I really love Jesus and I really feel like there's these experiences that people had with him that I can have with him. I, I, I want that to be your experience in this series, but I also want you to consider the implications of him also being intellectually credible. Consider the importance that Jesus is actually calling us to believe certain things about him outside of our emotions or our feelings, which is exactly what's being presented to us today in the text we're going to be looking at. If you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 35. There are some things we're going to see today, some things that we're going to look at that I believe significantly call us to make a decision about what we believe about Jesus. We're going to see some beautiful things. You're going to go, man, I love that about Jesus. But you're also going to recognize that he presents to us an opportunity to believe certain things to be true or untrue. So where we're going to pick up the reading today, I want to give you just a little bit of background. On the previous day to where we're going to start, Jesus had traveled with his disciples to the home of Peter in a city called Capernaum. When Jesus gets there, they begin to bring people to Jesus that had serious ailments or were demon-possessed. So these are people that are struggling with physical, mental illness, all sorts of different things. They're coming to Jesus, and there's a line outside of Peter's mom's house. And one after one, Jesus is healing them, person after person after person after person, all day long. They go to bed. We begin reading in verse 35. It says, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, and you can just assume while everybody else was still sleeping, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and he prayed. So after a day full of people, 
Jesus needs some alone time. Same, right? Anyone with me in this? I remember years ago, my, uh, my middle daughter, Maddie, we had had a week where we had had people over to our house like week after week or day after day after day. And I don't remember if we told her there were more people coming over or if she walked out of her bedroom, but I'll never forget the look on her face and the words that came out of her mouth when she found out that we were going to have more people over. She looked at us with this scowl and she goes, people, people, people. And she spun around and marched back to her room and I, I'm not sure Jesus said it that way here, but the man needed some alone time, right? He needed some alone time. And all joking aside, I think we so often lose sight of the flesh and blood Jesus, the, the Jesus who had sore muscles and needed a nap, the Jesus who, after a full day with people, needed a break. So Jesus goes off to pray. And then we read this in verse 36. It says, Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Of course they are, right? Jesus is healing people. He's changing lives. Of course they came looking for him. But then listen to his response because Jesus says something back to them and it teaches us something. It teaches us something about Jesus that I think is gonna make more sense later about his prerogative and what he's up to and how that shapes our lives. Listen to verse 38. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, that I may proclaim there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is really revealing. Jesus is having wild success in Capernaum, right? In human terms, wild success. And the disciples, being human, being focused on results and popularity, and they're seeing these healings, they're seeing people's lives change, they're thinking, Jesus, we might want to just stay here for a moment. Like, whatever campaign we're running, this would be good PR for us for a while. Let's leverage this moment. But then Jesus reveals that his plans are very different than our plans. He sees things very differently than we see them. Sure, he, he could sit in the village, he could pull up a stool, and he could sit there for three months, and he could heal everybody day after day after day after day. That, that is in the scope of his ability, that is in the scope of his capacity. He has the capacity to do this, but Jesus says, no, no, you need to understand. My purpose is larger, my purpose is bigger than this. I came to announce the kingdom of God. Like, I'm shifting people's understanding of reality. That is why I'm here. And so he says, we have to move on. We have to tell more people. And so now they begin to travel through Galilee. That's what precedes verse 40 and our encounter with Jesus and this particular member of humankind. Look at verse 40. It says, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. I want to take a moment and talk about this man, this leper. Leprosy was a mystery in Jesus' day. And if you were diagnosed with leprosy, you essentially were delivered a death sentence. Um, not only would it ravage your body, but leprosy would tear at every aspect of your life and the places from which you derived any sense of identity. There were three pretty significant tragic implications for leprosy. First, there was just the physical dynamic that took place. Not only was your body deteriorating, not only was it because it was untreated, just this constant erosion of your physical being, there were laws of the day that made it very clear to the people, you can't touch a leper 
and a leper can't touch you. And so people became very afraid of lepers. And as a result, there was this physical distance that took place. They said, you, you lepers, you can't live near us. You can't be around us. You need to separate yourselves because we don't want to accidentally bump into you. So imagine this. You get diagnosed with leprosy and the rest of your life, nobody ever fist bump you. Nobody ever shakes your hand. Nobody ever pats you on the back. Nobody ever gives you a hug. You never get embraced. You never get a t- touched again from another human being. Untouched. That's this man's life. So that's the first part. And then secondly, you're cut off socially. Um, Lepers, because of this, now they don't live with their families. In fact, because of spiritual misunderstanding, a lot of the time the family members made an assumption. You got leprosy because you did something. You deserved this. That's the way they thought in those days. And so that assumption wrongly caused them to excommunicate the family member. And so these lepers, they lose their social network. They lose their family. They lose their friends. They're forced to live off in open spaces, usually outside of cities. They are complete social outcasts. And then there are spiritual ramifications. There were very clear rules about lepers not being allowed to worship and not being allowed to attend the synagogue or go to the temple. And so now there are these spiritual implications. It would be basically like somebody saying this, because you have this skin disorder, you can't pray anymore. You can't read your Bible anymore. You can't worship anymore. Your relationship with God, any means that you might have to connect with God, we're taking that from you. That's what happens to a leper. That's the life of a leper. I remember years ago, I was sitting on a, on a subway car in New York City. We stopped at one of the stations, and a man got on the opposite end of the car from where I was. And I watched as people parted around him as he stepped onto the train He began making his way down the center of the car. And as he did, it was like Moses parting the Red Sea. People just split on every side as he made his way down. And I'll never forget when he came past me, I just looked at him and he was covered head to toe in soot. And clearly he was an individual who was living in the subterranean underground network beneath New York City. This man hadn't seen the light of day and he was just covered black. Every inch of his body was covered with soot and dirt from the trains. And as he passed by me, there was a smell. There was this odor that I will never forget. It was unlike anything I've ever smelled before. It wasn't necessarily bad, but it wasn't even human. The man went and he sat at the end seat in the car. I'll never forget this. And as he sat down, everybody just sort of moved away from him and just stared as we traveled in silence on the train. And whenever I think about that man, I think about this man with leprosy, literally referred to as the untouchables. Don't touch them. But they're not just called untouchable. They feel untouchable. They feel this. They feel unloved. They feel like they're not capable of receiving love from others. Which brings us to the intersection of this story with our story. Can we ever feel the same? Do we ever feel the same? Are are there things that are in our story? And and maybe there are things that that we did. Maybe it's choices that we made years ago or months ago. Or, Or maybe it's something we didn't do. Maybe somebody did something to us. So, so maybe there's things that are, that are our fault or maybe there are things that aren't even our fault, but they're there. They're a part of our story. And no matter how hard we try to shake that thing, 
the memories creep in and we have these feelings of guilt or shame, the sense of, I hope people don't find out. Are those things, does that happen? Do we ever feel untouchable? Do we ever feel unlovable? Do we ever feel unworthy? Of course we do, right? Of course we do. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't have to go very far back in the recesses of my memory to remember things that bring up shame or embarrassment. From childhood to adulthood, there are so many moments that I wish I could erase that when I think about those things, it stirs feelings, it stirs memories, it stirs emotions that make me feel unlovable. They're there. And so whether you and I bear the outward marks like this leper does, there's likely not one of us in the room that cannot identify with this leper at some level or another. We know what it's like to feel untouchable, unlovable, unaccepted. So he hears that there's this man named Jesus, and he can take all of that away. He can wipe the slate clean, and he is in town. And so he goes to him, and he throws himself at his feet, and he implores, he begs in desperation. And the next few moments of what we read are loaded with so much meaning for you and I. First, I want you to notice how the man asks. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. You can heal me. Notice that he's not questioning Jesus' ability. He's not questioning Jesus' capacity but he is questioning his motives. He is questioning his willingness. If you will, if you you wanted to, you could is what he says. And so he's questioning, do you want to? Do you want to heal me? I think this is such a wildly vulnerable and beautiful moment because I think it reveals the human heart and where we struggle oftentimes in our connection with God. Jesus, do you want to do this for me? Isn't this something you want for me? And in a motive-clarifying moment, Jesus responds in a way that defines how God feels about me and how God feels about you. If the circumstances of your life ever make you wonder how God feels about you, if you ever go through circumstances and you think, man, I don't know if God really loves me, I don't know if God is really for me, which, by the way, that's a valid thing to do. The Bible's full of people who are questioning, God, are you still on my side? If that ever happens to you, the response of Jesus to this man's question, what's your will for me? His response tells us the entire story of God's love for us. Verse 41, it says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. There's a couple of ways you can read this, and sometimes I think we read this wrong, and so we don't feel the power of the moment. We we miss the authenticity of God's heart in this. Jesus, it says, is moved with pity, but the word pity really means compassion. He's moved with compassion. The Aramaic expression that Jesus would have used infers that Jesus would have groaned. Like, there would have been a moment when this man asked this that Jesus would have verbally and out of his chest would have been like, ah, like this aching for this man that sits before him. He feels something rising up inside of him, and then he touches him. He touches the untouchable. And I want to just reframe this so that we see this correctly, because sometimes I think the same Grinch that stole Christmas stole our imagination around the Bible. Like, we read this, and we see Jesus as this stoic, white-robed individual floating into the room, and then the man begs of him, and he just says, I will be clean. And it's this formal interaction. 
the, the way that Mark describes this, it's not like this. This guy throws himself at the feet of Jesus. He desperately cries out. I know that if you, if you wanted to, you could. He says this to Jesus. And what Mark is describing is that Jesus feels this thing rise up inside him and he lunges towards the man. Like before the sentence has ended, Jesus is touching him and cleansing him. It's this immediate response. He doesn't miss a beat. He just says, I will be clean. It's important for you and I to understand that he doesn't stop and think about it. He just does it. He just does it. Why? Because it's who he is. It's his nature to move towards the man. I've heard people make sermon points about the intentionality of Jesus touching the untouchable. Like he thought about it. And then he did it to make some sort of point to everybody. But if that is your view, then I think you miss the real point that's being made. The real point is that Jesus doesn't think about the man being untouchable. The real point is that he just moved towards him. He is just inclined to move towards him immediately. He grabs him. He touches him out of impulse, out of his character. I don't believe for a moment that when Jesus reaches out his hand, in his mind is this thought, oh, this is going to ruffle some feathers. Wait till the religious leaders get a load of this. No, he just did it. He just did it. By the way, he did it. He didn't do it because of what this man did. It's not because this guy followed a formula. Like kneel, implore, express faith, and talk to Jesus about how much you believe he can do this. He like followed step one, two, and three. No, Jesus did it because of who Jesus is, not because of what this man did. Are you with me on this? And how do I know that? Well, I know that because that's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. See, religiosity, legalism, it tells us that God accepts us because of something that we did or something that we didn't do. But the gospel is the opposite of religion. The gospel says it's never about what you and I have or haven't done. It's always about what God has done unconditionally for us. The the rabbinical religious teaching of, of like, if you do this thing, you get this result, it's completely transactional. And if Jesus is showing us how God feels about it, then he's totally eradicating a transactional nature of our understanding of who God is. He's saying, no, that's not how God relates to you. Out of compulsion and compassion, Jesus moves towards the man and he touches him and he heals him. It's beautiful. I want to I keep going because this story is so good. Verse 43, the man gets healed and it says, Jesus sternly charged him. Uh, it's interesting because the language that Mark uses is an emotive language. Like Jesus was caught up in emotion during this. Like he's very passionate. There's passion involved here. And he says, he charged him and sent him away at once and said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go I get this sense like Jesus almost accidentally healed him, right? Like he does this out of his personality. He's like, wait, wait, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. It should have held back, right? He, I, don't, I don't know if that's the case, but it's the sense you get. Like Jesus does this and he's like, don't tell anybody about this, right? But go show yourself to the priest. Listen to this. Go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. This is really interesting. This last week, I went to a Blazers game uh, with a bunch of folks um, from our staff here at B4, and we were in the cheap seats. 
we were in the cheapest seats. Let me just put it that way. And uh, you know the ones where they offer you oxygen on the way up so you can get there, right? It's like, it's like we were watching the game from the top of Mount Hood. You know, we're looking down and are those ants playing basketball down there? Like, what is this? What did I come to? Is, what, is this basketball like that high? And I'm sitting up there, you know, and I'm just kind of taking it in. I was in the second to the last row and I'm just, it's high. And I'm just, I'm taking it in. I'm looking at all the people that are up there with us and I'm just looking at them and there's like a, there's a culture in the cheap seats. Like there is a, there is a crowd and I'm not talking about a number of people. I mean, it's like, there's a thing like the cheap seat crowd. They have this DNA strand that connects all of them together. Like it's a scene, it's a vibe. You know what I'm talking about? Like there is a certain kind of person and they behave a certain way. There's like kids and dads and they're screaming at people who cannot hear them but they're gonna scream like they can, right? And they're just like shouting at refs and like, you realize the refs cannot hear you. Like, but it's amazing, right? So I'm watching, I'm watching this crowd. I'm kind of taking it in. And then I look down and I'm paying attention to that courtside crowd. And I'm looking at all those people in the front row and like players sweat just dripping on them and they're just absorbing it. And, They've got their popcorn and their food being delivered to them by people that are serving them. And it's just like, they have like, I'm looking at them and I'm like, which, what's, you know, this whole thing, right? When I read this story and I see Jesus heal this man, then he says, go to the temple. You know what Jesus is doing? He's finding this man up in the cheap seats and he's going, you know what? I got a courtside spot for you down here. And he's bringing him down and he's sitting him courtside where the sweat can slather all over him just like everybody else, right? That's what he's doing. See, even though Jesus obviously did not care about obedience to the rabbinical law, he tells this man to follow the rabbinical law. He tells him, I want you to go to the priest and I want you to have this condition verified. That's kind of interesting, right? Why does he do this? Well, remember what this man had lost. This man had lost physical touch of people. This man had lost any sort of social connection. He had this social stigma that was on him. This man had all of these spiritual ramifications. And what Jesus says in doing this, when Jesus says, I want you to go do this, he's revealing his heart to restore all of his life every corner of his life, every aspect of his life. Jesus' desire is holistic. He doesn't want anything undone. He doesn't want these corners of his life not touched. Jesus says, I want to renew all of your life, everything that's a part of you, not just one sliver. So go to the priest and get restored in all these places. He's renewing him, giving him a front row seat. One more thing, check this out. So Jesus tells the guy, pretty passionately, if you read this in Greek, don't go tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody about this. And then verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So the guy didn't do what Jesus asked. Now Jesus can't even stay in a Motel 6, right? He's like camping out with his head on a rock because of this guy, right? So question, Did Jesus take it back? Nope. Was there a moment where Jesus is laying on a rock out in the wilderness, unable to sleep, tossing and turning in the cold? He's like, that stinking leper cannot believe. You know what? I'm going to put it back on him and like, you know, cursed him and put the leper. He doesn't do it. Why? 
because it wasn't conditional to begin with. Guys, it wasn't conditional to begin with. It wasn't about the man behaving or not behaving. It's about Jesus and his desire, his grace, his love, his compassion. That's what it's about. One more question. Do you think the guy could help but tell people? Nope. Nope. Why? Because when the creator of the universe has made himself known to you the way this man had him made known to him, you cannot help but want others to know him the same way that you do. When you meet Jesus this way, when you see this is how God feels, you just want everybody to know this, right? There's these little mixer games that people play where, you know, you're getting to know people and they ask you silly questions. Like someone will ask you, like, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? And uh, it's supposed to reveal something about you. My friend Kevin at our first service this morning, he came up and he said, I want to be a poplar tree. And I said, a poplar tree? And he said, yeah, I want people to like me. And I was like, dad joke, right? Or people say, like, what, if you were a dog, what kind of dog would you be? And that's supposed to reveal something. By the way, in case you want to know, I'm a Labrador retriever. Uh, I like to play in the water. If you throw a ball, I'll chase it. I like to lay by the fire, and I'm pretty easygoing. That's pretty much me most of the time, so I'm a lab. But, but that whole game, those ideas are just so, like, you get a better way, a better angle of understanding who somebody is, right? Well, last week, Pastor Alex reminded us of something so eloquently that the Bible says over and over again about the person of Jesus, makes it very clear. God says in the Bible, if you want to know what I look like, if you want to know how I behave towards people, if you want to know my character, if you want to know what I'm like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. So so let me just close with saying this. If Jesus is the answer to our curiosity about the character and nature of God, the creator of the universe says, you want to know what I'm like? Look at him. Then that universe that we find ourselves living in is rigged in our favor. Because Jesus tells us that God is for us and not against us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? I want to take a moment and just let this kind of seep in into our hearts. That he is for you and not against you. He's for you. The impulse of Jesus is to rush towards you in your moment of desperation and deliver healing. And if you walked in here this morning and your memory is littered with shame or guilt or if you feel unlovable or untouchable, or if you ever think, man, if people found this out, I want to give you a moment right here and right now to let Jesus stretch out his hand and touch that memory, touch that thing, and wipe the slate clean. He will be clean.
Jesus, we thank you for your healing touch. For all of us in this room that have gone through things that cause us to maybe at times question your foreness for us. Lord, I pray that we would have those thoughts eradicated. For those of us that have walked through circumstances, maybe had things done to us or we've done things to others that we feel horrible about, Lord, I pray that your forgiveness would wash over us, that we would experience the kinds of cleansing that this man experienced, that we would be clean, that we would be renewed. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your healing touch. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. If you guys would stand with me, it'd be great. Um, I'm gonna offer the benediction in just a moment. Um, after the service today, you know, we've been doing something every week just to get you guys to hang out and belong and to talk because we need this. And uh, today there's hot cocoa out in the commons. So in addition to coffee, some of you need to back off the coffee now. You've had too many already. Uh, so you know who you are and your spouses know who you are too if you're married. Um, so there's hot cocoa out there. We also have some live music out there. Corey and Whitney Parnell are out there. They're amazing people and they're gonna be singing some songs. You can hang out. And then we did something unique this year. Um, we've got some cards out there and some envelopes. I don't think there's very many things as powerful as just a handwritten encouraging note from somebody. And so we wanted to just encourage you by putting these out there on the tables. There's pens just to take a moment today. And if there's somebody in your life that you just want to express gratitude for or touch base with or just say thanks, we just want to give you a chance to do that. So those cards are out there. Feel free to hang out and, uh, and do that. But as you go, let me offer this benediction. If you'll open your hands to receive it, I will offer this to you. May you be men and women who because of your understanding of Jesus being for you, may you live with wonder. May you live out of abundance and may you walk in freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We love you guys so much. Have an amazing, amazing day.